Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Out with Susie Ruffle. Now, I didn't know how to start the new series, so I thought, why not do something a bit different? So what we've got today is, well, it's not an interview with a specific person, although I am speaking to a person, of course, but today we're highlighting a charity. It's AKT, formerly known as the Albert Kennedy Trust. And I have always been so inspired by the brilliant work they do I thought it would be great to have a conversation to Tim Siegsworth, who is at the head of AKT, the chief executive. And we're also speaking to Faz, who is someone who has used their services. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think that the work they do is just brilliant. And if you haven't heard of them, I am delighted to introduce you to them today. So today I've got a different episode, actually the first episode of this sort, and we're hoping to do lots more, where we highlight, rather than a specific person, a charity. And I'm very excited to talk about this charity today. I've supported this charity for a long time. I think the work they do is amazing, and it's really lovely that we're getting to highlight it on the podcast. Uh, It's AKT, or formerly known as the Albert Kennedy Trust, and they support LGBTQ plus young people aged between 16 and 25 who are in the UK and have facing or experiencing homelessness or living in a hostile situation. So they do lots of incredible work about making sure that people are in safe homes. They help them find employment, education, training, and they sort of save people when they're in a bit of a crisis, to be honest. And I'm delighted to say that joining me, we've got Tim Sigsworth, MBE, no less, who is the chief executive of AKT. Hi, Tim. Hi, Susie. How are you? I am really good. I am baking in this glorious sunshine, but I am really good. It's a very hot day to ask you to do a podcast, and so I do appreciate that you're with us, even if you might be melting somewhat. Um, so let, let's talk about you You to begin with. what's where, where did you grow up? I grew up in a little northern town called Bury in Lancashire, and the, th- the thing for me was I just knew nobody else who was LGBT. I knew that my mum was very homophobic even even back as a a young kid because I Mm -hmm. would hear her talk about it so I was very much a a quiet kind of secretive kid because I knew I had what I saw as a secret and Bury was not the place for that secret to come out and so did you you were sort of not out through your teen years was it did you move away when you decided to come out well I I just started to live a double life because I just basically I'd never been somebody who'd lied to my parents and I found that I was lying to them. My dad was um, critically ill, but was supportive, but, you know, not somebody I could talk to. So I used to go to um, LGBT youth group in Manchester and I just lived a different life every Tuesday night and every Saturday, I would just go and live a different life. And so what sort of age were you at this point? I think I was 17 when I, I got to that point, but this had come after a very horrible experience for me. I realised when I had my last girlfriend at 15, she realised I was gay before I really did. And um, she, she stopped me. I got to a crisis point with this. And she's the reason that when I attempted to commit suicide she stopped me she pulled me back from the edge and I'll always be so thankful for Erica because she made me see that I was I was important and I deserved to live my life so that was a horrible start to my teens but then 
from 17, I, I just aggressively hit the world of LGBT Manchester. And do you remember that first time that you went into that youth group in Manchester, how that felt? It was absolutely petrifying. <laughs> you know, I was not the, the most gregarious out person. So I just sat in a corner and didn't speak to anybody. And I was petrified, but people came over and it was incredible. And, you know, if you can imagine what it'd be like if you landed on Mars... It felt a bit like that for me. I was suddenly around all these people who seemed alien, but I was just completely fascinated and frightened. And did you sort of create your first sort of network of LGBTQ plus friends there? Absolutely. And I, I was talking to one of them um, yesterday. We're, we're like just elderly gays now, as we call ourselves, I'm afraid. But we were we were talking about those days and what it was like. And it, it was incredible. I met my first boyfriend there. And what sort of year would that have been? Oh, back in the mid-80s, you know. Mm-hmm. I um, It must have been 85 um, when I was 17. You know, all I saw around me was people like James Anderton was our chief commissioner, who believed that gay people who... Um, were living with HIV deserve to die in a cesspit of their own making. He actually said that in the press. It was a really homophobic time to be out. Yeah. And that was the thing for me. It was like society was against me and my mum just wasn't accepting. So there was this little microcosm of the LGBT world in Manchester where I hid. And did you end up moving to Manchester? Is that where you, was that your home for a while? I ran away to university first. Right. In York. Okay. In York. Okay which was brilliant. Um, You know, I had a group of people around me who supported me and it was wonderful. And then after that, I settled in Manchester, which was wonderful for me. And then obviously moved to London later on, but it just allowed me to breathe and be myself. And it was so important. Absolutely. And did you know that you wanted sort of a career in activism or in in that sort of work? I'm a great believer in... um, you know, you've got to get yourself out of things with support from others, but you've mm-hmm. got to you've got to make a contribution to your own, you know, your own self. So I was I was very much like the minute because of Section Twenty Eight rally started yes. nineteen eighty eight, and I was in Manchester and I had this nice group of new LGBT friends, and it was like, no, I've got to make a contribution, and I always I've I've always had in the back of my mind if I don't speak out. I let another person be silenced. Mm-hmm. So I always think about now I make a big thing about holding hands with my partner and kissing him in public because I just want anybody who's out there to realise that to see a young person who's doing the same, you know, give them respect. So the activism thing for me just came naturally. I felt that Erica had done me such a favour, youth group had, I owed it back. And so how did you start? What was your sort of first steps within activism? Well, it was Section 28, making the banners in youth group, going along to that and just completely emerging myself in, in protests. And I am I love what's happening at the moment around positive protest I see mm-hmm. around the world. It's, I'm saddened that we're still doing it on so many issues. But for me, that protest is so important because if we're visible, we're heard. And if we're heard, people have to, have to, have to respect us um, in our numbers. So I'm you know, I just did as much as I could. So I did that. I think activism is also, for me, it's not online activism. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's great. Share your messages. That's really important. But you've got to get out and be in the real world and be visible to everyone, not just your friends yes, and your I supporters. Agree. And so I did everything. I, I volunteered as a buddy for a HIV charity. And I had to deal with very close up watching people die of AIDS-related illnesses as a volunteer. I mean, you must have been, I guess, in your early 20s around that point? Yeah, I, I yeah, I was at that point, yeah. That's something that we've not actually covered that much on the podcast yet, about sort of what it must have been like living alongside people that were, you know, dying of complications to do with HIV. Was it terrifying to see that up close? That's exactly it. The, the weirdest thing for me was that, I was going to youth group and I was seeing these really frail people of my age walking around and thinking, wow, what, what, what's wrong? You know, mm. and, and then realizing they were experiencing um, AIDS related illness. And it was just, wow, you're my age. How can that be happening to you? And it was terrifying. Yeah. And then it made, it made me 
petrified of sex, of course, and um, and what might happen to me. But then my first boyfriend came out to me as as HIV positive, and and that was like. I didn't know what to do with that because it was one of those relationships where there was more kissing than anything else. So it was <laughs> like, you know, I was I was coming, you know, I was experiencing my first gay relationship, so it was a lot of kissing. But then having to start to uh, think about safe sex, and unfortunately, that first boyfriend that I had died uh, um, a few oh years later. Um, not when we were together, but later. And I just thought, do I want to be part of a world where? people are dying you know do I want to be in this world and I I just realized um today the last pandemic real pandemic we faced was was HIV and AIDS yeah absolutely and it took 10 years to get the first drug AZT and yet we're racing now it's affecting everyone now that COVID is something that affects the general population we're going to have a vaccine possibly by Christmas Mm. And it just took me back to the difference of how a marginalised community was treated. Absolutely. And did you, have you ever worked in, in, in HIV charities or sort of AIDS-related illness charities? Yeah, I have, to, I have to come out as a professional gay of 23 years. Okay, great. I, I, I don't know how I'd survive. I, I started out in social work in the, in the other world. Yep. But I have obviously lots of years of volunteering. But finally, the first charity I joined was... a. Uh, HIV and sexual health charity. Right. So I was right at the centre of that. And at a time when so much was happening and so many advances were coming into place. But yeah. And when did you move over? I'm sure there's been lots of charities in between. But when did, what was your route then to get to AKT? Well, if I could just go back a little bit. The weird, the weird, Please do. The weirdest thing for me, I was in a pub in Manchester, just come out of youth group, and we heard the news that, Albert Kennedy, the charity mm-hmm. was named after, had fallen from a car park in the village, a gay village in Manchester, as it was known then, um, mm-hmm. and had had died. So that stuck in my mind, and it was then just shortly after the charity was set up by an ally. Could you tell us a little bit about Albert Kennedy? Yeah, I, I, I have to be clear that Albert wasn't rejected by his family. In fact, his mum has come on Pride Parade marches with AKT, you know, so his family were really supportive. He never used AKT, but he symbolises the homophobia of the time. Yes. So Kath Johnson, who was a, an ally, who set up this charity because she felt such an injustice that a young man fell to his death probably being chased, as we think, by a group of homophobes mm-hmm. who were looking to get to him when he was, was out in the um, the queer village. So you, you had known about the Albert Kennedy Trust, as it was known then, f- from all that time ago? Absolutely. And, and do you know what the weirdest thing was? That some of the young guys who, and young women who were coming to the youth group were using Albert Kennedy Trust and that I didn't realise at the time. And some of my friends from there were using, I, I started to realise we're using Albert Kennedy Trust as a way of support. So, wow. um, so it's been full circle for you. It has. And I, I say this is my dream job because I always wanted to work in, in the queer community and to work with young people and to have some role in empowering another generation is, is fantastic. Absolutely. So let's talk about the work that AKT do. I, I know um, as someone that's you know been aware of your work for a while that it's a lot to do with sort of youth homelessness, isn't it? Or supporting people that are living in hostile environments. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, basically, there are around 103,000 young people at risk of homelessness at the moment in the UK. But 24% of them identify as LGBTQI. Mm-hmm. So massive overrepresentation. And the, the general reason that we find that these young people are facing homelessness is because they're facing rejection and abuse after coming out to their parents. Yeah. So it's a very specific reason for them. And so though those people can then get in touch with AKT. And and what is it that you guys offer them? What support is it that you that you give? I mean, we're principally focused around homelessness. Yeah. So obviously the first thing we do is make sure that young person's in safe accommodation. Mm-hmm. So we'll provide that through maybe our Purple Door project or through one of our host homes or, or through one of our partner organisations who have accommodation that's safe for LGBTQ people. 
And what is the Purple Door program? The Purple Door is a, is a safe house. And it was right. the first in the UK for LGBT youth specifically. And it's where they live with a group of other LGBT people where they get support from our team. And it's their first taste of independent living. And we hope from there they'll either, the relationships with their parents will heal. Mm-hmm. And obviously in that case, that's when the parents have realised, just, you know, have come to a realisation or that they'll move on to independent living. But it's that it's that safe space where they can just breathe, be themselves, develop some skills, find employment, education and training and get the start in life that they've been denied, really. And how long do people, how long can people stay there? Yeah, it varies so much. We always thought it would be a really quick project and people mm. would be on their feet in two weeks. It's not like that though now. And um, so wherever we place young people, whether it's Purple Door, host homes or in other accommodation that we help um, support them into, the, the stays can be all different lengths. And I think that's that's the thing about AKT for me. We don't give up on young people. We make sure they're safe. But now in particular, there's so many challenges that, to us doing that work. Yeah, there must be. And what what kind of people come to you? I suppose it's all types of people that are, that are, that are experiencing this. It certainly is. I mean, we have a an incredibly diverse group of young people who come to us for our support. Mm. But just as in the general homelessness population, we see an over-representation of black and people of colour mm-hmm. who are particularly vulnerable within the LGBT community because yeah. they're not supported in the same way. And and so 63% nationally and rising to 77% in London of our young people are identified as black or people of colour. Right. So they're incredibly um, at risk and vulnerable and not really recognised as such by general services. And alongside that, 27% of our young people are trans as well. So yes. there's a big group of trans young people. And obviously beyond that, there are many people of faith. It's a, It was around 45% last time we, we looked at that. Right. So it's young people who are facing multiple oppression anyway who then come to us for support. And the amazing thing that you guys do at AKT is that you also help with people finding employment or more education or training, which, I mean, it's just sort of setting people up for their, I guess, new life or a a life where they can sort of celebrate who they are and sort of start from there. Absolutely. And and just to say alongside that practical support, we do so much work. Our caseworkers, who are phenomenal, um, do so much work around um, self-worth, self-esteem, yeah. mental health issues. Without a doubt, the majority of the young people we see have had a massive impact, negative impact on their mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So just having that space where we can help them build their self-esteem, self-worth, build their resilience is the first step before we help them through things like our Rainbow Starter Pack, the dreadful name but brilliant project <laughs> because it, it provides your first month's rent, your deposit, things they might need oh, wow. when they've worked with us for a while. So, you know, our team have thought of so many inventive ways to give young people a start. And if they've been working with us for a while, we'll, you know, things like a suit for interviews, really small things, yeah. um, linking them into a course or linking them into an employment opportunity. It's just, you can't look at homelessness on its own. You mm-hmm. never can, but it's really important for us that we we provide all that practical and emotional support as well. Yeah, it's so important. And and to develop those sort of, I guess when you're living in a, in a hostile environment, it's very difficult to dream about what you might want to do with your life. So I guess a lot of it is having the space to be able to think what you would like to do. Absolutely. And one thing that always upsets me, because I'm so fortunate that even though I'm the CEO, I get, I still get, we're, we're the size of charity that I can still you know, engage with young people. So mm-hmm. through our youth conference and our youth strategy days and stuff, I, I meet them. And I am always so upset by the fact that they really have lost their self-worth and self-esteem. And there's this incredible group of talented, resilient, incredible individuals who don't think they're going to get anything in life because if my parents don't love me and my parents don't think I'm worthy how can I think I'm worthy? Mm-hmm. And it, it's so sad. And then they go on to do brilliant things. And that's so wonderful. It must be amazing to see 
people take those next steps in their lives from sort of one of your host places or or from Purple Door, that must be, I mean, it must be amazing. Well, it is. And you're going to speak to somebody who has stayed at Purple Door later on. And that person is, for me, the living embodiment of just what our team do in partnership with young people. But I, it's always funny for me, and I'm missing this this year massively, because we're not marching in pride parades around the country, I'm missing young people just running up to you out of the crowd and going, Tim, Tim, do you remember me? And it's like my memory is like rusty and thinking, oh, yeah, you were with AKT back in blah, whatever, and talking to them about where they are now and what they're doing. And one of them ran up to us at Newcastle Pride a couple of years ago and suddenly presenting a baby because oh, wow. they'd, they'd, they'd adopted with their partner. And I was just in tears over this baby. That, oh, my God, that's amazing. You're making me well up here. I know. Um, it's just like you do feel – you do start start to feel like almost a parental role and I, I think we always have to keep that distance as a professional organisation but, but when somebody runs up to you and, and just and presents know, a baby it's very hard <laughs> not to get emotional <laughs> like, oh you're so incredible and that's that, so amazing not so good when they say does that make you a grandparent Tim <laughs> <laughs> and how long have you been with AKT I, I've been at AKT longer than I've been in any other job in the uh, LGBTQ sector so I've been here like 13 years would you believe and I never wow. thought I'd stay, but you know when every day you're inspired by the people you work with and the young people you see? It's hard to leave. It's hard to leave. And what is next, I guess, for, for AKT? I'm, I'm guessing you're working on, on quite unusual ways at the moment. I did an a, a Instagram interview with one of your brilliant caseworkers a couple of weeks ago. And you were saying, and she was saying that you're doing a lot more stuff online, and people can get in touch in that way. Is that something that's been really helpful during this strange time? Oh, absolutely! Just to give you a sense, um, our referrals in London went up by a hundred and seven percent at one point during lockdown. Oh wow! Massive stress for the team. Yeah, huge. Because we've had some digital services already, we just switched to an online service and. Mm -hmm. It's a real challenge because despite what people think, and this is one of my bugbears, is that people think that young people just want to engage digitally. Absolutely not. They're like the rest of us. Of course. You know, human contact. <laughs> Absolutely. We all like a hug. Yeah, and they just want <laughs> to see you in front of yes. them saying it'll be all right. And that's been a challenge. But we've just switched to digital and the mm -hmm. team have been phenomenal. But the challenges they face, because there's less accommodation, which is safe at the moment, young people are trapped in domestically violent environments with parents during lockdown. Nobody really considered, as we've seen with the DV rates that have gone through the roof yes. during lockdown, nobody really thought, how do we keep people safe at home if we're going to lock them down? Yes. Um, there. So we've had lots of that, lots of mental health stuff, um, joblessness and um, evictions and parents who are constantly saying as soon as lockdown comes comes to an end, you're out the door. I don't want you here. That, that's a, Imagine that on top of all the other pressures of just being isolated at home. It's just like... Totally. And, yeah. and, and just being a young person, the, the added stress of, of working out what you're trying to do or college or uni or if your education's been paused somewhat because of all of this. Also, this is a time when people are, after thousands of years, waking up to racism. Mm -hmm. And I'm just imagining the, the majority of our young people, as I said, are black and people of colour. They're facing a, horrible things around the world around racism, yes. what's happening. And also homophobia, biphobia, transphobia alongside that. To be in that situation now, it must be terrifying for a young person. Yeah, it really must. Now, something that I really want to highlight is how we can help. I know there's <laughs> lots of listeners to the show who will be thinking, maybe I can donate. But I also want to talk about what it is being an AKT host. Could you talk a little bit around about how they work? Absolutely. Um, so um, host is similar to foster care, but you're supporting young people who are slightly older than mm -hmm. you would have there. So a person who has a spare room who feels that they could offer a safe home to a young person, they're usually 18 to 21 who go into our host placements. but um, And that placement can be just the odd weekend, the odd week, or it could be a bit longer but providing a safe home to a young person. And 
obviously because they're a little bit older it's a little less intense but it's just having a really positive affirmative home where they're you know they're valued for who they are and they learn a bit more about um looking after themselves and moving to independence and presumably you know you can be gay or straight or however you identify to be a host Absolutely. I mean, as as I said, we were found by an ally and that's, we've got a great belief. As long as you are, you know, we train you, we vet you, you go through the usual DBS processes and Mm -hmm. lots of other checks, but, and it is a long process, I have to say, but the thing for us is it's all about, are you going to be supportive of an LGBTQI young person? That's at the heart of this for us. Mm -hmm. We can have hosts in Manchester, London, uh, Newcastle in particular, there are three three areas, but, you know, we welcome people to come forward for that. But there are so many other ways we need people's support at the moment as well. How can people get involved? Well, I'm a great, great believer in donating. <laughs> I think it's really important because, like I said, we've seen this massive spike in referrals. So please, if you can give, it, a few pounds makes a, a huge difference. You know, it takes £25 to provide an emergency weekend for a young person. So anything on that journey or beyond that journey would help. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I want people to be activists with their, with their pens and keyboards. And I, I'd say, you know, write to your MP, write to the Prime Minister about what's happening around transphobia at the moment, yes. what's happening around the fact that LGBTQ young people who are homeless are not seen as priority need at the moment because they're not they're predominantly not sleeping rough. Um, write to your MP about the fact that there's a massive overrepresentation of queer people who are black or people of colour who are not being recognised in the measures that are being put in place. So, you know, stand up. And if you're not sure what to say, come to us. We can help you with that. Volunteering's difficult at the moment because we're in lockdown. And if you want to become a volunteer, we need to put you through lots of things. And some of them are, you know, we need to meet you. Yeah, of course. And that's difficult at the moment. But the lobbying campaigning work I've just described, donating, you know, starting the journey of becoming a host or just not liking what we put online, but sharing what we put online. You know, yes. we've got a survey out at the moment and we want to hear from as many LGBTQ young people who've experienced homelessness. So please, if you're one of those people or you know those people, send out that message. And then when we're finally back properly, yes, of course, we need more volunteers and especially hosts. Okay, that's brilliant. That's great for us to know all of those things, to learn all those things. I know that I, it's definitely something that I'm going to look into and how I can volunteer with you. And thank you so much for giving up your time on a, on a sunny afternoon to share your story, but also AKT with all of our listeners. Now, Tim, there's something that I do um, to everyone that I chat to uh, on the show, and it's basically a, a bit of advice. Now, you can think of it as someone that is currently needing the help of a, of a place like AKT. You can think of it as um, that boy that you were in around 85 walking into that Manchester youth group. If you could give them a piece of advice, a little bit of hope for the future, what would you say? That despite what you hear, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people just like you out there. Whether you're a queer person of colour or whether you're, you know, you're a trans person, whoever you are, there are thousands of us out there. Don't be alone. Reach out to people with her. So I'd always say speak to someone and that can either be us or another organisation, make that connection. Or if you've got somebody you can really trust and confide in, talk to them. But I'd always say, don't isolate yourself. Reach out, get some support, because there are so many people around there wanting to support you. And you're part of a huge community. Tim, that was such a wonderful conversation. I've got to say, one of my favourites that I've done. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. For um, being part and giving us your time. I really appreciate it. So as Tim mentioned just moments ago, we're now joined by someone that has used um, AKT. We're joined by Faz. Hi, Faz. How are you? Hey, Susie. Now, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where where are you from? Where did you grow up? What's your deal? <laughs> What's my deal? Um, so... Uh... <laughs> My name is Faz. Um, I go by he, him pronouns. My identity is QT Pot. That's queer trans person of colour. I was born in Essex, Chelmsford, and I moved to London 
when I was very, very young. Um, and I've been a Londoner since. And how old were you when you sort of realised that you might not be a straight cis person? <laughs> when didn't I know, Susie? That's the right, question to okay. ask. That, that comes up a lot. That comes up a lot on the podcast. So it was sort of inherent in you from the get-go. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've always, um, I think trans identity is very different to the spectrum of LGB because it's focused on your gender identity. Um, mm-hmm. I think from a very young age, since I was watching my brothers walking around topless at the age of five, is a time when I was like, okay, that's me. Uh, when my brothers would go to boys' toilets, I was like, yep, I'm just going to follow you behind. Um, I just never, ever felt like I belonged. And although I'm laughing and joking about it now, I think it created a severe disconnection and disassociation with my own body and overdevelopment and, and puberty. I think um, it becomes more evident that this is not me and I feel trapped in my body. Yeah, I can totally understand that. We've had other people on the show that have, have talked about that sort of disassociation and that experience of feeling like things don't feel right, things don't match, things sort of, yeah, disconnect in in your head to your body. And what was it like at school? Did you, you were saying about sort of wanting to follow your brothers into the boys' toilets. What was school like for you? So you went to school in London, presumably. Schooling was very, very uh, dysphoric. It felt really trapped because I went to an all-girls school. (laughs) So it wasn't the best. That must have been really, really challenging. Very challenging because everyone's going through puberty at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going through puberty as well, but I don't really know how to say it, you know, because it's all girls. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm on my period or yeah, I'm going through this or yeah, I'm going through that. Um, I never got to share my experience or got to let it out or speak to anyone about it. And often, like, I would get comments around oh what's in your pants ha, ha, ha. oh how did you get accepted into a girl school you're a boy do you even start your period uh, so so all these different things and and there wouldn't be a close-knit conversation this will be like the the class clown that will shout out um what genitalia do you have that's the first question when I was in year five at the age of 11 I got asked what genitalia do you have and that threw me off a little because yeah of course because you don't really you don't because to me this is weird and I'm different but this is normal, right? This is puberty, right? I'm supposed to feel a type of way about my body. Um, but I, I never had the, the knowledge, the education or the awareness that I needed to be like, okay, this is this is my identity and this is what I need to do. I've always felt trapped. I always felt like I couldn't share this information with anybody. Yeah, so it was quite a lonely, a very depressing experience for me. I mean, schooling wasn't just just all that, you know, it did, it did bear some good things and it did have good outcomes and I did make good friends. Um, mm-hmm. friends that that now say that if they weren't friends with me, they wouldn't even know what trans is and they wouldn't even know how to support trans people. Um, and I'm quite vocal. I, I, I'm quite active about, you know, trans rights and trans awareness and stuff. So I kind of keep an open channel for my friends and for my for my dear ones to have a safe space where they can ask me questions. Um, but that took a long process of me, you know, at the age of 20, 23, 24 is when I started transitioning. So really later on into my life. And I think part to play with that is my intersectionalities, um, you know, being a brown, trans, Muslim, mm-hmm. you know, even within Muslim, I was marginalized because I was Shia, I was from the Shia background. So I'm just having this this influx of identity that's been chucked onto me, the East and the West and, and the languages and the barriers and all these different things that was coming at me. Um, and on top of that, trying to navigate um, or speak to, to to family members or speak to people that speak the language around, you know, how do you tell people you're trans in the language in Urdu? How do you tell people you're trans in Punjabi? You know, how how do you say that to people? It must have been enormously isolating. It, it was definitely isolating. I feel like, you know, when you're in a, in a tight-knit family or, you know, you're close up with your friends and stuff, often conversations will arise and um, there's a lot of, like, locker room conversations around LGBTQI identity and it always felt detrimental for me to come out and it always felt like another Mm. thing that that made me step back and say hold on like I can't come out or you know am I really am I really trans do I want to be trans you know how do I help myself like what do I do I think you start to you question yourself because people around you aren't aren't as supportive or as aware as you thought they were and and I think I think one thing that really yeah, one thing that really messed with me was when I was, you know, 12 years old, my mum, my mum was very, like, she passed away when I was 16. Um, but she was very much, you know, interested in why I am the way I am. You know, she was like, you're, you're not a girl and you're not 
a boy I, I don't know what's going on so she must have taken me to the doctor at the age of 12 and I think the doctor was a definitive of whether she was going to make a change or whether she was going to help me or support me and I think I think at that time the doctor was like um, it's just a phase and a lot of children go through this phase and, and your child is just going through a phase and and my mom just held on to that and was like, it's just a phase, you're going to get over yeah. it, you're going to get over it. But I'm sure if my mom was given the support that, you know, there's a possibility your child is transgender, that she, she would have backed it. And the reason why is because, you know, in Shia Islam, in, in the Shia sect of, of Islam, um, it's okay to be trans and the, the religion and mm. the jurisprudence of the religion supports you transitioning. So I think my mom would have been an advocate for it. But it turns out that the doctor was like, no, it's just a phase, you know, she's going to get over it. And so at this point, were you quite male presenting? Is that how those sort of discussions started? If I could show you pictures of myself, Susie, when I was um, Eid, especially during Eid, when I would have, when my mum was forced me to wear Indian dresses, it was impossible for me to smile in pictures. It was such a facade, such a, such a big thing you know I used to get in trouble by my mom why you're not wearing that dress why you're not having your hair tied up why you're not doing this and I think that was the reason why at the age of five um you know my mom did what every mother would do to their daughter which is like put put pigtails and put different hair clips in their hair and Mm -hmm. stuff so my mom put all the glittery stuff all of the pinks and the and the lilacs and the purples in my hair and And, you know, I looked at myself in the mirror and it just took her to turn around for me to cut a snip of my hair I couldn't do it. I looked at myself in the mirror. I can still remember. I was so young, but it, it was such a profound moment for me to, you know, am I a girl? Like, is this how I'm being presented? Is this what people see me as? Because this is not who I am. So I cut my hair and that forced my mom to um, shave the whole of my hair. But that came with that came with my mom asserting my, my, my female stance by making me wear, like, I'd wear black joggers and grey t-shirt, but she'll make me wear those, those like, black bow shoes for girls with pink laces in it so people knew I was a girl so yeah it was quite it was quite tormenting having to go through that Mm -hmm. and do you remember the first moment you heard about trans identities um luckily for me it was during my um it was during my dissertation at university um, I done my dissertation based on trans identities. You know, how do we question heteronormativity and present transnormativity in a way, and how what does that look mm-hmm. like? Now, when I went to a research, and 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 it began off with you know gender identities. That's what my dissertation, and I started my dissertation two years before it was due because I was so passionate about it. Um, and in that process, you know, I was like, okay, what 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 is the LGBTQI community? What is a trans in this? What does this mean? And I went on a journey during my dissertation in finding my identity, in in picking pinnacle moments in my life, you know, um, when it was quite forefront and and quite foretelling that I am trans. And I used those mm. as a way to navigate myself. And, and that was the first time. And I think I'd read a book uh, by Judith Butler, who was questioning lesbianism and 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 what that means. And, and I think... Uh, I can only speak for myself, but I went through a journey of identifying as as gay as opposed to lesbian because lesbian meant I I identify as female and I don't identify as female. So gay is the most closest, but still isn't fitting. Right. It wasn't a fit, but it was better than lesbian. Yeah, because a lesbian meant I'm a female and I never ever yeah. could, could relate to that, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, that makes sense. And so we were speaking with Tim earlier about the incredible work they do at um, AKT. How did you come to use their services? Um, I came to use their services in first time in 2015 when I had concerns around my safety and um, they took my passport and put in their safe, which meant that I couldn't leave the country, which meant that nothing could happen to me, which made me feel really, really safe. And I didn't really leave my setup at that time and come to Purple Door, which is the emergency accommodation, mm-hmm. until a year later. So what were you worried about with your safety with leaving the country? Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, because I, I come from a very um, a very cultural background. Um, mm-hmm. And there's always fears around going back home and never coming back. And the UK not having jurisprudence in those countries or having any rights in those countries. So it was merely the concern around I don't feel safe so is there a way that you guys Mm -hmm. can make me feel safe and one way we decided together was if they took my passport it would make it it would be a lot easier for me to 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 be myself without fearing any consequences and at this point had you come out as trans 
it was after my dissertation when when I realized, wait, hold on, I'm I'm actually this. There's a name for this. There's actually mm-hmm. a name for this, and this makes it a lot easier. I know people are anti labels, and people are like, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be classed. But at that time, I had nothing to go by. And at that point, that that label was a safe haven for me because it meant it gave it gave me validity, mm-hmm. even though I, I guess we don't really need it through labels. But at that time, it was quite quite scary for me to be like, oh, I'm different to the rest of the world, but I'm not really. There's there's so many trans people out there. I started to you know, YouTube became a phenomenon, and people started sure. started putting their um, transition online, and I started to watch that, and I was like, this is me. I completely know what you mean, though, about labels. I, I think you're right. I think lots of people that were listening would think that I don't like labels and I don't like labeling myself. And I think that's totally cool and great and whatever, you know, whatever's good for you, do that. But I remember when I first sort of knew about lesbians, I was very comforted that there was a word. Yeah. I felt sort of reassured by the fact there were all of these women that came before me that identified as that as well. And I think that sometimes when you're sort of on the beginning of your journey, having a label to sort of hold on to for some, not for everyone, of course, but for some, including myself, can be a bit of a life raft. Yeah, like I, you know, I I, I studied further into like uh, Marsha P. Johnson and the Stonewall Mm -hmm. riots. um, And and I realised, wait, like this is this is actually a thing and it's been a thing for a very long time. And if you look at um, Indian history, historically, you know, transgender identities are quite praised and are quite celebrated mm-hmm. within the Indian culture. So I was I was quite torn between, okay, we're, we're celebrated, but we're not celebrated. So how does this work? So did you, you feel like in literature or that you could read in resources that they were celebrated, but that's not what you were experiencing within your own community, within your own world? Of course, and I think that's that's a lot to do with stigma, and I think that's a lot to do with mm-hmm. um, education, and I think that's a lot to do with awareness. I do, like I said, like you know, my my mom came to this country when she was seventeen years old. Mm-hmm. She she was an English teacher and a maths teacher back home, but here her qualification had no value and it had no uh, bearing. So she's now in a country which she's disassociated with this country she doesn't understand how it navigates and then for her to then accept all these identities is 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 asking for a bit you know it's asking for a bit too much when you don't really know where you stand within this community yourself let alone all these different identities so I think I think if my mom was given the right guidance like I said with the doctor she she would have mm-hmm. been supportive um and, yeah and I think if if it was spoken more about you know Islam and Shiism and and all of that is very accepting you know Iran has the second biggest sex changes in the world, rates in the world after um, Thailand. Nobody knows that. And it's like, well, it's quite acceptable. So therefore, um, and their rulings from Ayatollahs and their rulings from, from religious leaders that say it's okay to transition. But that you never hear about that. But you won't because there's always this propaganda around, you know, trans identities and how certain cultures are very oppressive towards it. And it's like, it's not even so much like that when I speak to people from my community they want to know they just don't know how to go about it yeah and so you came to use uh, AKT because you didn't feel safe and where were you living at that point were you back at your family home or um, at that point I was living with a friend of mine and I had been there for six months um, mm-hmm. and I just knew I couldn't be there anymore I mean she was happy to keep me but I think I felt like I didn't have a sense of belonging and I felt like you know even me sitting on a seat in the corner I felt like I was taking too much space off their house and I felt like you know if I I didn't eat too much you know I lost a lot of weight um I didn't want to eat their food you know it was just and it wasn't even they weren't supportive they were it was just my personal insecurities and my own understanding of myself and me being displaced from that Mm -hmm. really threw me off and I was like no, I I can't live like this. And then I contacted AKT and I was like, listen, I'm 100% ready. I want to move out. I want to, I want to love myself again. Mm -hmm. How do I go about that? Um, And it was on a Monday, I called them and by Thursday, I was moving into the Purple Door, which I mentioned before is the emergency accommodation. Oh, wow. And was that a massive, like that first night when you got to Purple Door and you sort of, you know, you got into bed and put your head on the pillow, was that a massive sense of relief? Oh, Susie, if only I could articulate that into words. It's so difficult to, to because when I walked in Pure Purple Door, straight away, he, him, straight away. Yeah. What do you want to be called? Straight away, people joking around with me. There was no, why are you wearing that? Why are you acting like that? Why are you behaving like that? Um, there was a sense of 
safety and I say this far too often like people take granted for safe homes being safe mm-hmm. um I never experienced that and for me to experience that when I walked through at the age of 24 into Purple Door um was life-changing I'm now amongst people that celebrate me amongst people that you know I sleep at night time and I know the person in the other room refers to me as he and the person in the yeah. other room refers to me as as a human being and that makes a huge impact. I think, you know, if you ask the support workers, they, they'll tell you I blossomed within a week. Like I went really? from a shy, timid, <laughs> literally I went from a shy, timid young person to tell me what's going on. I'm here. And yeah, it has a huge impact. And and I couldn't be more grateful to AKT for, for giving me that platform. I, there's, a, there's a stigma around homeless young people and homeless LGBTQI young people um, around, you know, we're disruptive, we're this, we're that. I wasn't any of that. I literally just had my, just got my degree I was, you know, trying to navigate my identity, wasn't working out. I'm now in a situation where either I leave where I'm living or my mental health will deteriorate to a point where I might end my life. So it was, it, to me, it was either do or don't. And if I don't, mm. then I'm not going to live. And if I do, then that means I have to let go and sacrifice a lot of who I am. You know, culturally, I don't, people don't realise like, the, the, the ability to speak your language your 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 mother's tongue or your your mother's language you know it comes so foreign to me now so when you were staying with that friend and I know that sadly your mum had already passed by this point but was then there was no family that you could have lent on when you found out about AKT was it like a light in the dark yes definitely and I think AKT is my family and over the past four years I have laughed with them. I have joked with them. I have even cried. I have gone through such hard times and, and they've held me down for it. Like no matter what I do, they always celebrate my small wins and my big wins and they're always rejoicing and celebrating me. And And I think from a family, that's what you need, unconditional love. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how long did you stay at the Purple Door for? Um, I stayed at the Purple Door for three months. So at that point, it was just a three-month stay. Mm-hmm. But they they extended that because they sent me as a young ambassador to America. Oh, wow. Yeah, did you go to the summer camp? Was that right? Did I read yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a summer camp and I became a camp counsellor and I was um, I was, I was caseworking five uh, complex need cases and there were 30 young people altogether. Right. That must have been amazing to have that opportunity. That must have felt really exciting. It was brilliant. And I think I think that those 10 days were, were so amazing to realize like young people are going through so much. And it was also like a place for me to be safe and a place mm-hmm. for me to say stuff without thinking, am I portraying myself a particular way? Am I coming across a particular way? Like I built a family with them too. And I still mm. speak to some of my young people from there. That's so great. That's so um, amazing because I can... When I was talking to Tim earlier, he was saying that one of the big issues that come up when people need to access um, AKT is that their self-esteem is really at rock bottom by that point. And, and, you know, you saying that, you know, in your first week you were, you know, quite shy and retiring and then within a week you're sort of blossoming. That must have been huge for you to go from that shy and retiring person and, you know, in just a number of months you're going to America to be a counsellor. That must have been huge it is huge but I think I think I always knew that was me I always knew I'm confident I always knew if I was given the right resources if I was you know if I could channel my identity much better I could I could become that and I'd often sit into like you know workshops and and think oh I have a really really good idea but I don't know how to put my hand up or I don't want people to look at me because my voice sounds a bit too high like I want to say it and and that creates anxiety like when you walk through the door when you walk you know, walk past stuff and when you see people, like it creates a, a huge anxiety. And and I think it didn't come strange to me that I could do that. It came it came to me as like, alas, like about time right. <laughs> I get to be myself. And so did you use AKT more than once, the services? Sort of, you're saying they're your family, you sort of go back and you can go back to them whenever you need to or reconnect with them if you need that. Yeah, so as as so in those three months, um, you know, I I went to uh, America as a young ambassador, and over over the past four years, I've I've been doing projects with him as a young ambassador, whether that's through young people, whether that's through fundraisers, whether that's through you know giving awareness, mm-hmm. training, and stuff like that. And you know, over time, I progressed. So I went from a young ambassador last year. I became a president of AKT. Amazing, and it's just brilliant to to have that. 
to to see like they've you know I went from a, a young person uh, somebody who just was homeless and came to use AKT and now I'm I'm a young ambassador I'm I'm a president I'm now like on the verge of trustee and like it's just it's just amazing to see that they recognize and celebrate individual successes and individuals and I felt like this was one charity that literally took me for who I am Tim was so excited that we were that we were speaking to you he was he was oh you're speaking to Faz that's going to be great they're obviously <laughs> enormously proud of you as well Tim is amazing I think I think my first conversation was with Tim was was absolutely phenomenal I think we just shared the common interest of young people needing safe spaces and why we still need these kind of services um, and it's unfortunate that we need these services but if without these services you know I wouldn't be able to be where I am right now um, like I said I don't even think I'll be here right now so if it wasn't for AKT and their support and them always pushing me always pushing me like I went from from delivering workshops to five people to 300 people and that to me was such a uh, was such a a validating moment and such a validating experience because it said you know every time Tim will pep talk me and Tim's and Tim's <laughs> Tim's pep talk with me is they want to hear what you have to say your experience is far greater than everyone else because you have lived experience absolutely and that's so powerful like to, to feel validated for the experiences that I went through and not to feel like you know it's burdensome or to feel like you know I'm, I'm just dragging it on because I'm not like we created we created ways to ensure people are considering intersectionality and support planning. You know, we, we're creating change within within the world we're living in today, and that's through AKT. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so pleased that we can highlight the brilliant work that they do on this podcast. Just before we go, I, I know that you're now doing, like, you've obviously got lots of work going on with AKT, and you're a president for them now. And you're also, you've just got a new role as a lead of the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Is that right? But yeah, I've just become the, the, the DOV lead and, and my understanding of that is to empower young people that come from BAME backgrounds, come mm-hmm. from, um, you know, socioeconomical backgrounds that present disparities, but to empower young people on that and give them a platform to achieve the goals that they set for themselves. Well, Faz, after just spending 20 minutes with you, I know that you're going to be brilliant at doing that. I, I, I know you are. You're so brilliant at, at talking about you're experiencing and, and Tim's absolutely right the lived experience is it's just so much more empowering and so much more important I also know that you write a lot of poetry yep and you're writing a book at the minute now if people are listening to you which I'm sure lots of people are and thinking I want to know more about him I want to read what he's up to I want to stay in touch I want to know what he's doing how can people do that um so mainly I I use Instagram mm-hmm and I deliver a lot of training and stuff like that. So more than happy to give you my email and stuff like that. Like anybody who wants to have conversations, I'm more than happy to have those conversations. Um, it's also important to ensure that you're not having conversations with people that don't want to have conversations. I'm quite active. I'm quite yes. out there. Um, I'm more than happy to do that. So, you know, don't go picking people when you don't know how comfortable they are or how how exhausted they are from doing this. But I'm more than happy for people to reach out to me. So more than happy to do that. Well, um, I'm sure um, I'll I'll make sure that we put uh, your details on the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's it's so important the work that AKT do. And it's so great to speak to someone that that has used the service because as Tim says, the lived experience is is just so much more inspiring and empowering. And uh, let's stay in touch. I wish you the best with absolutely everything Uh, that you do and I'm really excited to see what you do next Faz. Thank you so much Susie. Susie, I really appreciate you giving me this platform and this opportunity because without these platforms I don't think we could get, get the message across so thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Well I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to both Tim and Faz. You can find out all that you need to know about AKT online. We'll put some details in the show notes and as ever do Get in touch with us here at hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Please do share with us your coming out stories or any of your feelings or thoughts about the podcast. And also please remember to like and subscribe and maybe leave us a little review on iTunes. The series will start next week with my wonderful first guest, Alan Carr. Please be sure to tune in then. Have a great week. Bye. <laughs>